I'm Dieran Garrigy and you're listening to The Laughs of Your Life, the podcast where I talk to influential people about laughter. From their first memories of laughter, to feeling laughed at, to the person they always laugh with. I have a great friend called Ed. Uh, he's my oldest friend. <laughs> sounds made up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's sitting beside me now. <laughs> Can't everybody see him? <laughs> he's a soldier for World War I. He's still covered in bandages. <laughs> I see him every night. Uh. <laughs> Broadcaster, comedian and meditation expert Dermot Whelan is my guest this week. He talked to me about his childhood summers spent in La Hinch, how he arrived to the Kilkenny Catlass Festival in an ambulance and how meditation plays a massive part in his life. I was delighted to record this week's podcast live from the Salesforce offices in Dublin as part of their Wellbeing Week. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. I think we should just kick off, Dermot. What do you think? Yeah, I just want to say hi to everybody. <laughs> Thank you for hosting us. Thank you for giving me my special tag that got me in. That, uh, Ash, lovely Ashling, who guided us in, uh, casually mentioned, oh, make sure you use that or you'll set the alarm off. Um, as a Limerick man, I'm used to this kind of thing happening. Um, I, it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, I have to say I'm relatively new to the company, but I've been doing my research and I went onto your wonderful website and I watched three different videos and I'm happy to say I still have no idea what it is you do. It's just loads of very good looking, ethnically diverse people shaking hands and laughing and coming out of revolving doors. But all I know is I really want to work here. So please hire me. Okay, let's do this. Let's kick it off. Dermot Whelan, you're extremely welcome to the laughs of your life. Thank you so much, Darren. It's a pleasure to be here and on, on it. On the, in <laughs> on, and on the podcast. In Salesforce on the podcast. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Shall we just kick off with the very first question, Dermot? Sure. And I know you've listened to it before. Thank have, you for that, by yeah. the way. Uh, you mentioned the Donico Callahan episode earlier. And the, yeah. Uh, because the red underpants as a monster man yeah. uh, you know they are iconic yeah you know? that moment yeah um, do you have I any d- underpants stories in, <laughs> coming up no okay uh, I do actually have an underpants story <laughs> do you yeah go ahead it's just a really weird story that you know when you meet up with your family and you know, my brother lives in Italy and I don't see him particularly often so you start reminiscing about old times mm. And we would have, as a family, gone to La Hinch in County Clare for our holidays. We still do. Since I was born, we've been going there. And he, rem- he remembered, we were talking about going swimming in the sea. Uh, it's a seaside town. And, you know, back in the 80s, you just rolled up your swimming togs, uh, in your, your underpants in your towel. <laughs> and you put it under your arm and you went to the beach. Yeah. Uh, so somewhere along his journey, anyway, the underpants fell out. <laughs> Of his towel. Right. So I'm now getting this rush of anxiety thinking, why are you telling this story? <laughs> Keep going. This is just Keep really going. weird. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Go on, you've committed. So yeah, so he's, co- he's coming back uh, from the beach anyway and realizes that he has an underpants. And he, <laughs> he comes across two local kids about the same age as him who are poking his underpants on the ground with two sticks <laughs> and flicking them up in the air and having an amazing laugh about it. 
And he was so disgusted. Like, can I point out, he's probably about seven at this. It's not like <laughs> in his 20s or 30s. So he was about seven. So he saw the boys like, right. flicking his underpants around. Okay. And then uh, ran home crying because he was uh, very upset. <laughs> See, I shouldn't have told him. It's a really that. sad story. <laughs> and now he's scarred for life. But he's never returned. <laughs> I think it's a message in, you know, we should never take things too personally. Yes. That we can become attached to things, that, you know, probably unnecessarily. For him, the underpants being poked with a stick was clearly a violation. <laughs> he couldn't get over it. And we're still talking about it 30 years later. <laughs> anyway. Okay, right. Let's get to the actual questions <laughs> on the podcast. Dermot Whelan, your yes. first memory of laughter. He's like, well, there's one time I laughed at my brother because it's <laughs> yeah. underpants. No, sorry, go on. <laughs> Um, my first memory of laughter, I suppose, you know, that real belly laughter mm-hmm. uh, that and, and the first time I felt that was actually it's kind of topical. It being this close to Christmas, it was at the Panto, you know, and I suppose to I know we have a very multicultural audience here in Salesforce. Um, the Panto is this really weird half theater. I don't know, half piss up um, <laughs> that that happens. Uh, <laughs> Every year, and I suppose it's a throwback to Elizabethan theatre. But anyway, I used to go, as a kid, my family took me to my first panto, and it was with the late, great Brendan Grace, famous Irish comedian. Mm -hmm. And he was doing his famous character, Butler. And there was a bit in the panto, which they still do in a lot of them, where they would get, like, a grown-up and a kid onto the stage, and then they give... It was Jack and the Beanstalk. It was Butler and the Beanstalk. So they gave the kid, like, a magic bean, and he ate it. And then they asked him a question and they had pitched his voice down really low. So the idea was that the beans had changed his voice. So this little kid is going, rah, 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 rah. and then the grown up <laughs> had a magic bean and their voice was really squeaky. Okay. Uh, and I just remember thinking this was so funny that I fell off my chair and then got sort of stuck in the footwell <laughs> of the chair in front. But that feeling, that first memory of laughing so much that you literally can't get off the ground, um, that will always stick with me. I just think it was, it was the first unbelievably hilarious thing I had ever seen. And then later, as I became a comedian, I, I had started these characters called the Toll Trolls who had a squeaky voice. And then we made albums and they went double platinum and all these. So these things have a little... They stick with you, you know, for years, you know. So that was my first proper belly laugh. Who would you have been there with? I was there with my dad and my mother and my sister, I think. That's all I remember. I do remember when we came out of the theatre, my dad's car had been broken into and they had stolen his favourite hat. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously Christmas was ruined. Um, you know and then like I remember because it was blood in the car that someone had literally put their fist through the window to get at my dad's hat which (laughs) was the hat that I was everyone was embarrassed when he wore it around and I was thinking actually maybe my mother smashed the window (laughs) and took the hat just so he wouldn't wear it again Um, so what was childhood like for you Limerick yeah uh, nothing like Angela's ashes. Can I just? <laughs> you had we, shoes. I had shoes, and we didn't eat coal off the road. <laughs> yeah, we were middle class. We uh, don't have to eat coal for dinner. Uh, no, it was pretty. Co- it was countryside, you know. Um, so I did things like chased 
uh, trailers that had hay on them, you know, being pulled by tractors and jumped on it and played in hay barns and skated on frozen bogs. And I realize now it sounds like the famous five. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty nice and, and rural, you know, school fates and all that kind of stuff. How many kids were there? In the I'm house? the youngest of six. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what so was that like? It was kind of weird because even though I am the youngest of six, I kind of was like an only child for a lot. I have a brother who's four years older than me, so we would have spent uh, a lot of time sort of together. My older brothers and sisters went off to college and disappeared quite. I mean, my, one of my brothers emigrated when I was nine, you know, and never came back. You know, he, he came back for a holiday the odd time, but literally when I met him as a teenager or even into my 20s, it was like meeting a stranger, yeah. even though he was my brother. And we, were re- we are really alike, our mannerisms, everything. Um, but, you know, the, the brother next to me was a really ratty teenager, so he never spoke to me. So I was kind of like an only child, really. <laughs> this sounds really depressing. It's so sad. It was fine. I had action, man. I, was, I had company. <laughs> it is funny, though. My dad's one of 11, and he says that... The older half of the family, I suppose, have such different memories of childhood than the younger half. Like when my, the day my dad was born, his eldest sister was 17 and she emigrated to New York. She stopped in the hospital, met my dad as a baby, newborn baby, and left. And their memories, obviously their memories, because they're massively different. But even the ones who are like five or six years older than him, they just have different ideas of what childhood was like. Because I suppose back then the older siblings had to look after the younger ones and... Yeah, and it makes current Christmases really awkward because half your family is going, do you remember we had the pony and you tried to jump over the fence and you fell off? And the other half of the family go, no, I don't remember any of that. Uh, I was six months old. I was, I was dribbling on myself at the time you went to college. So I, how can I remember any of this? Uh, but yeah, it is, it is funny. I think only people from big families can kind of relate to that. Yeah. And we don't really see, don't see many families anymore with six kids. But in fairness, in the 80s, that was a micro family. You Except know. Mary McCallaghan's family. She's yeah. got eight kids. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> sure. they're from different generations, <laughs> I would say. Okay, right. Dermot Whelan, the first time you felt laughed at. Um, I suppose I could answer this maybe in two ways. As When I was in school, I, I do remember sort of... Sometimes, I mean, as a comedian, you want to be laughed at because that's your job. Mm -hmm. But then there are times in your life when you don't want to be laughed at. And I do remember being in school and you know the way your mates are always kind of ripping the piss out of you. Uh, We were at the central area in school for assembly, school assembly. So there's 600 kids all there. And the headmaster comes up and he goes, um, big Jesuit man, and he says, Oh, the winner of the Easter raffle of this giant bunny is uh, number ticket 55, whatever. And I was just standing there watching it. And I didn't realize that all my friends, at how they, had, they hadn't planned this, but it just happened. They all backed away from me. And they all moved away. So I was left on my own. And then they all started clapping. So the headmaster is going, Dermot Whelan, come up and collect your bunny. And it was like fight or flight or freeze. I just froze and like, you know, like when you're so embarrassed, you can feel yeah. the blood start to come up your neck. Like <laughs> a science fiction movie. <laughs> and just like, wonk. I was just the reddest, most embarrassed person on earth. <laughs> and just, it was like, you know, those, 
you know, TV shows where they have old people are laughing and pointing in slow motion, like, ha, 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 ha. And meanwhile, the headmaster is going, come up and get your bunny. And I'm trying desperately to get back into the group of my friends, but they keep pushing me out. And I remember a few hours later, I saw a little first year in the school walking by. And he said, look, there's the boy who went purple. So, so that was probably my memory of being laughed at. Um, but you always remember your first stand-up comedy gig. Yeah. And, uh, I suppose possibly I became a stand-up comedian because of that very <laughs> event to try and exercise those demons. Uh, but yeah, doing your first stand-up comedy gig was in the small club, the International in Dublin. And it was actually comedian Des Bishop who suggested that I would do it. And I was kind of unsure. And he goes, I'm booking you in for five minutes. You're doing five minutes. <laughs> Um, so who am I to argue with a man who speaks like that? I don't know if he speaks like that. <laughs> he does in my head, in my memories. He's like one of the good fellows or something. <laughs> and then he beat me over the head with a shoe. Uh, so I, I, I did the gig and I remember I was just about to go up on stage and obviously I was feeling nervous, but I was feeling kind of quietly confident as well. And mm. I was ready for this, you know yourself, kind of, you know, the, the worst part of of doing an event like that is the week running up to it yes. but just before you do it it's actually okay you yeah. kind of feel like you're, you're in ready. the you're in the sweet spot and you're ready yeah so i had my guitar with me i was doing a comedy song to kind of finish the whole set i think yeah it was five or six minutes of comedy that i had and then i they the mc came out or des bishop goes out and he goes uh, give it up for Dermot whelan and just as i'm going to walk to the stage my wife grabs me by the arm and goes don't do the song <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> Don't do the song. <laughs> I was like, I have to do this. They're literally, I'm literally walking to the stage. Could, you, could we not have spoken about this like, <laughs> last week when you heard the? Anyway, I went up and I did the song and it all went great. And that feeling of a room full of people laughing at and with you is, yes. a, is a special thing. Yeah. Were you always... I never listened to my wife's advice on comedy ever since. <laughs> were you always a messer and a joker? Like, where did that come from? Is it, was your family, were they all funny or were you just the funny one? I think a lot like yourself, when... Like, like your first audience is your family. Yeah. And if you, if you do have a sense of humour, a lot of the time it starts with impressions like yourself. And who are you going to do impressions of other than the people who are around you? So... I started to do an impression of my dad because he was a, one of the old-fashioned dads and you would never answer back and you kind of had to... You couldn't just run into the room ranting and screaming during the news, you know. You'd yeah, be, yeah. You'd be told to get out or go to bed or whatever. <laughs> so I do remember daring enough to do an impression of him, you know, watching television and eating chocolates. That, that was the impression. Um, it's very hard to do now. <laughs> and obviously no one will know whether yeah, we're like, good or go. not. Yeah, <laughs> we don't know who you're doing. Uh, but I, it kind of starts there, where you you kind of mimic, you start mimicking the people around you. And mm-hmm. I mean, who was you, you? Must have done impressions of your family members, did you? Cause Teachers you, mainly. I, I'd come yeah. home from school and I'd get my family to sit down, and they'd be the class, and I'd be the teacher. And they like the teachers would have taught my other sisters, and they'd be like, "She nailed it," you know. So yeah. that was like, I can do this. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a special. I'm always I kind of as a comedian you kind of think about where did this come from why did I feel the urge to get up on a stage and start blathering you know in the hope that someone would laugh and you so you start to go is it because I didn't get enough attention is it because I'm the youngest I think it's something to do with the youngest for me anyway I like my, my eldest sister was very sporty my middle sister was very businessy 
And I, I just, I think you, but I think as well as the youngest, to make your older siblings laugh, you're like, yes, they think, they think I'm cool. Yeah, there, I think there is a certain amount of you're trying to impress yeah. people around you. And then it almost becomes like an extreme sport. Um, <laughs> do you, because there are moments just like if you're, ju- I, I've done parachute jumps and, you know, I have often found comedy gigs to be far more threatening than than doing a parachute jump and that's kind of ridiculous but it, it is kind you're of so like, much more exposed though I think you are but also there's it's the energy is a big part of it and as human beings we are energetic beings and we, we kind of thrive on energetic exchanges so whether that's simply meeting an old friend where you get that rush of lovely warm positive energy if you're doing you know uh if you have a standoff with someone in the street or shouting at someone in the car who just cut you off, that's an energy exchange and it can be quite invigorating or, uh, you know, threatening or, you know, we kind of like experiencing, not all the time, but different changes in energy. And I, I became very aware that when I was on stage, it's this weird energy exchange between you and the audience. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's coming from you and you feel like you're, really transmitting one way other nights you feel like you don't have to do much because all the energy is coming another way towards you and and there's this constant weird interplay that i think as human beings were sort of subconsciously fascinated with and we like some of us more than others like putting ourselves in those situations where we're exposed to maybe more extreme um exchanges of energy if that makes any sense it is in a way like an extreme sport so you at sometimes you're going why am I doing this to myself? Why am I jumping out of this comedy plane? And it's because of you enjoy that adrenaline and you enjoy what you learn from the occasion and whether it goes right or wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And you're always a bit different after a comedy gig. You've always learned something, you know? Yeah. Um, and then when you can take that into real life, you, you will eventually, I, I think you will become afraid of nothing because if you can do that, you know, you've learned so many lessons, so it definitely helps you, you know. Okay, Dermot Whelan, the moment when if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Um, I, I'm, I seem to be fascinated with stories from my childhood, but there was, <laughs> was like, you know, when you're a kid and something that is to someone on looking on is hilariously funny, but to you, it can be devastating. And I had, you know, as a kid, I was running around Lahinch on my summer holidays and you never had any money. And I used to go to the amusements and look in all the change slots to see if I could find a 2p. And anyway, I managed to get enough money together for some candy floss, you know, and that was a luxury because that was, you know, it was penny jellies or nothing. So I got some candy floss and she used that weird machine that still doesn't explain how it's food. (laughs) Uh, where you put your the stick in and, and definitely never gets cleaned yeah you're like that is just wheeled out every <laughs> summer and no one has ever washed that <laughs> and i'm pretty sure it's just coloring and sugar but i'm too young to care so yay making a double um so i was doing that sort of she did the candy floss and i got the canvas and i remember feeling oh yeah this is you know i could hear martine mccutcheon singing this is my moment <laughs> <laughs> obscure martine mccutcheon reference <laughs> I bet you all money you won't hear another one of those this <laughs> week or year. Anyway, I walked out the door with the candy floss, proud as punch. I'd say I was probably six or seven, and I walked straight into the thickest cloud of blue bottle flies <laughs> I have ever seen. 
and they all immediately became encased in this, you know, like Han Solo in Carbonite. And not dead, just stuck. It was like the sweetest flytrap they had ever experienced. And they all just immediately stuck at it. And I remember there was... A, was a woman who was standing at the door who had literally just saw what happened and I'm standing there holding this sort of weird shrine to almost dead flies and she just lost lost it laughing at me and I remember thinking how could she be laughing this is you should be crying like this is tragedy like my candy floss you know how much I've scavenged to get this and now I can't and then that moment of is it okay to eat this? Yeah, yeah, 10 second rule. Yeah, is it like some weird game of Jenga where I can delicately eat around the flies but maintain the integrity and structure of the candy floss? Uh, yeah, so that was a moment, I guess. I like it, yeah. I like it. Okay, Dermot, your no laughing matter moment. My no uh, laughing matter. Um... I suppose uh, in in my work outside of comedy, I'm a, a certified meditation teacher. And it's mm-hmm. something I'm, I'm very passionate about. And I'm also a parent. And one thing I'm seeing more and more of, either in my own life, when I talk to friends who have kids, or whether people are contacting me just to ask me about their children, it's anxiety, particularly in teenagers. Mm-hmm. And I think whatever environment we have constructed for them, which is, you know, a development of whatever we had uh, in our teens in this country, I don't think it's working, you know. And I was thinking about it. I, my son, uh, you know, is he's 13 and he he has just started. He's in second year. It's his second year in, in secondary school. Mm. So he came home with his big, huge bag of books and he put it down and, you know, he sat down for a half an hour to watch a few cartoons or whatever. And then he kind of dragged himself over to the kitchen table and he started pulling out some books. And he spent three hours diligently doing his homework. And he's 13. And I was thinking, just watching him, like, as an adult, if somebody suggested to me that I, you know, get up at seven, turn up at my place of work mm. at 8.30, ready to go, and that I, I stay there till four doing my work. Then I'm doing some kind of generally enforced sporting uh, event. Enforced, yeah. Yeah, true. because the, all the adults in his life want him to do it. He's then coming home, you know, th- someone's saying, oh, by the way, you'll get home at 5.30, you'll be exhausted. You're allowed a half an hour of your favorite TV show. And then I'm going to make you do three more hours work. And then you can fall into bed and now I want you to do that for six years straight. If anyone said that to us, we would be like, you are having a laugh. This is not going to happen. Mm. Like, there is no job. How many people in this room would, would sign up to that? And by the way, you're not getting paid for it. <laughs> you know? and, and, also, a, and as you continue, it's going to get worse and you'll be put under more and more pressure. And throw into that social media and the way... Yeah, they have to deal with that. Yeah, and so, and by the way, along the, that route, you, we were going to give you a device, much yeah. like our fathers, our grandfathers behind us were handed a pack of cigarettes. We, you know, and said best of luck. We are handing them devices yeah. that are scientifically proven to cause them anxiety and depression, and we're saying 
best of luck navigating that device because by the way as adults we haven't worked out that we were, haven't worked out how to do that mm. but we might let you know so it just struck me that you know and then at the same time we see rapidly rising uh, levels of anxiety um, you know nearly 30% of kids between 15 and 25 have said that they have experienced anxiety or depression at some point you know, and we're sitting around as grown-ups, scratching our heads, going, why is there so much anxiety? I mean, what are the kids, you know, how do we fix this? And you're like, we need to look at, you know, meditation, I teach it, it's a great tool, but it's not the answer. You know, if, if you're working in a factory and, car, and, and boxes keep falling on your head, you know, the doctor who patches you up or the band-aids are great, but there's an issue with the factory. Mm-hmm. You know, why are the boxes falling in your head? So I think as a society, and this isn't limited to Ireland, but this is where we live, so let's look at that. As a society, we need to look at what we're putting our kids through and look at how our school system is set up. Because we're also using a school system that was designed for the Industrial Revolution. The 30 kids sitting down, looking up straight and learning things off. That, wasn't, that was designed for people who were going to work in a factory and mm-hmm. had to get used to, to sitting down for long periods of time and remembering and recalling information. So, you know, th- that, n- for me personally, I don't think a lot of the current school environment is helpful for the jobs that we are sending them into. You know, it doesn't... Being stuck at your desk and learning in a non-creative way a lot of the time isn't particularly helpful if you were going to be going into a very uh, creative uh, team environment for your first job, like where we are now. So I don't have all the answers. All I know is there are many people contacting me, and Mm -hmm. I see it in my friends' kids who are having to drop out of school, who are going through nervous breakdowns at age 15. Like something is wrong it's not their fault they are doing everything we ask them to do and more because they're far more diligent these days than we were mm-hmm. you know um so i think my no laughing matter is yeah. anxiety in our kids and just not feeling under pressure to have all the answers now but at least starting that dialogue and starting to introduce certain things into our kids lives that take the pressure off free up their minds free up their space their time so that they can really attack life with the enthusiasm that they have because I think for me looking at my own son you know he is amazing he inspires me he's so creative and enthusiastic and he just has a brilliant joy for life but I can see there are times when that enthusiasm and that raw energy is being eroded by what we as adults are making him do and his peers you know so I think keeping that conversation going is important you mentioned meditation a couple of minutes ago and that you're you're qualified yeah what's your what you're to teach do you teach it i do yeah i'm a certified master of wisdom and meditation which my co-host on today fm uh, dave says is as good as having a black belt in karaoke <laughs> um, <laughs> which i think is a very excellent qualification as well when when did you get into that and why was it was, was anxiety a thing for you and, and is that why you took it on yeah, looking back, it was. I suppose anxiety, even 10 years ago, wasn't really a thing that people spoke about. No. 
And there were some particular episodes. One of them was in 2008. I was doing comedy. I was doing breakfast radio. I was burning the candle at every possible end. Uh, I had been out the night before and I was on my way down to the Kilkenny Comedy Festival, one of the biggest international comedy festivals in the world. And I was very chuffed to have been asked. I was only, I'd only, it was probably two years into stand-up comedy. And... I hold a record for the only comedian to arrive into Kilkenny Fest Comedy Festival in an ambulance. Uh, you, I've seen a lot of people leave comedy festivals in ambulances. <laughs> That's kind of how it goes. Uh, but I had experienced on the way down, I was driving down and I was pretty exhausted. And I was probably nervous and there was a lot of stuff in my mind and I didn't have any mental wellness tools that I have now. Mm. And I felt like somebody was sitting on my stomach while I was driving. And I was thinking, this is weird. Like, literally like the invisible man had just sat into the seat on top of me. And I was kind of reaching for my breath. So I pulled the car in and I got out of the car. And my brother-in-law happened to be driving down behind me. So he's, so what's going on here? So I was starting to hyperventilate. And I literally thought I was having a heart attack. And I thought, our stroke. And I thought, this is it. Um, I'm going to die here. And what's, I was like, what's worse, I'm literally going to die near a roundabout outside Kilkenny. <laughs> you know, this is not the great warrior death we hear about in Lord of the Rings and, you know, <laughs> Game of Thrones. I want to die like a warrior. Yes, by the Bennett's Bridge roundabout. Uh, just on that little grass verge would be great. Um, <laughs> yes, in a soft margin. It's how we wanted to go. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I rang my wife uh, uh, or got my brother-in-law to, to ring her because uh, I thought I was checking out. That was it. I was Stop. leaving the planet. Except I, when I was hyperventilating so bad that because I was, it's a circular thing. You're going, what's wrong with me? Oh my God, I'm dying. So you start to panic more. Yes. And then my, all my limbs went into spasm and so I couldn't speak properly. My jaw went into spasm. So all my wife heard down the phone was, <laughs> and she's like, wow, are you drunk already? You didn't even get there yet. Um, but yeah, so and literally, you really want that to be the last words from your loved one on the father of your children. <laughs> you know, years later, what did dad say? You know, what words of wisdom did he leave us with? Uh, it was black, black nerger. Maybe he spoke Klingon. We don't know. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I, the ambulance crew arrived. They put me in it and they said uh, they, they gave me a brown paper bag. And that fixed it. I was like, wow, the HSE is in a terrible state. I nearly die on the road and this is what you gave me? Brown paper? Well, he said, look, that's all you need. I think you've just had, a, you've had an anxiety attack or a, or a panic attack. Have you ever heard of those? And I was like, no. And I around what you're that, talking about. Around that, I know you're saying you were tired and you were, mm. you know, but around that time, had you been feeling, you know, low in yourself or? No, I, I had small babies at home. I was under pressure. I wasn't rested. And to be honest, I probably, looking back, probably was anxious. You know, that kid who went purple in the school. Yeah. You know, that was anxiety. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the symptoms. If you tend to blush really easily in company, that, that's social anxiety. Yeah. Something I was never aware of. I didn't know it was a thing. I just thought sometimes I go red and it's not very comfortable and that's a thing with me. Mm. You know, so when you start to, to look back, you start to put the pieces together and you're like, wow, I, 
you know, as a kid, I, I definitely sweated a lot, you know, particularly if I was in company or, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, I probably drank quicker than all my friends because I... Wanted to take the edge off. Yeah, I wanted to feel a bit more relaxed in company. So, you know, why did I end up becoming a stand-up comedian <laughs> if I had social anxiety? But, you know, it happens a lot. And, and I, I'm, I'm stunned by the amount of people I meet in media who are very shy, very inward looking, really prone to anxiety. Mm. But for some reason, we just feel like we, we need to be out there. We need to be seen. And, you know, I, I think hats off to anybody in any walk of life, in any business who doesn't find interacting socially very easily, but still pushes through and manages to make their mark, you know. So I would love to say that in Kilkenny Hospital at that moment, you know, I, I lay there and went, from now on, things will be different. <laughs> <laughs> no, I pulled off the heart monitors after in the hospital and went straight into Kilkenny City and did two stand-up gigs that Stop. night and did the whole weekend and drank my head off. <laughs> right. But you cannot sustain that. And it, it, it leaves a mark. And then a couple of years later, I had too many pints and fell down the steps of a karaoke bar. I won't bore you with it. Uh, but again, it was another incident. And then after that, you start to go when you're, you know sitting in the bath with a black eye from falling down the steps of a karaoke club, which incidentally, as I came to, having knocked myself out of the bottom of the stairs, the song playing was It's Raining Men. <laughs> and there was a hen night in, It's Raining Men! As it literally was raining men. I had fallen down the entire flight of stairs. <laughs> uh, when but, I was kind of doing my research yeah. for this interview, just kind of looking up different bits and bobs, basically, the, one of the first articles that pops up is like, Dermot Whelan opens up about uh, waking up in bloodbath at the bottom of stairs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like, I, that's why I'm always wor <laughs> worried about telling, you know, a bit reluctant to tell these stories because they're always blown out into yes. like, he fell out of a jumbo jet, I think, and <laughs> he crashed to the ceiling of an orphanage <laughs> and landed on a spike. Um, <laughs> But all I'm saying is like that was 10 years ago yes. uh, more and there if you look at your own life and you look back you will possibly see a pattern of behavior it doesn't have to be as extreme as that there's probably nobody in this room who has suffered a panic attack and possibly will have one I have never had one since but just looking back it's not a bad exercise to do mm -hmm. to s possibly see patterns in your behavior that could be pointing to something underneath. And for me, it probably was a, a low level anxiety that I've had all my life since I was a kid. But just at particular times of, of prolonged stress and a lack of self-care can come to the surface. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with us. No. It doesn't mean we're broken. But it does mean that you can ask for help and that you can seek out tools to help yourself. And almost most importantly is watching the warning signs. I don't live like a monk. Mm -hmm. You know, I do still like to go out and enjoy myself. I know that one of my triggers is alcohol. So, you know, for, for years I didn't drink at all. The odd time I might have some alcohol now. But I really have to be careful because for me, that is one of the triggers that upsets my nervous system for some reason. Mm -hmm. So... There is looking after my sleep. There is not eating too much sugar. There's just particular things for my makeup that help me, mm -hmm. you know. And certainly for me, meditation was the way in, was, was the, well, I, 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 I'm, you know, it, it, it definitely changed my life. I'm not trying to get anyone into a cult, although the spaceship is landing in two hours. <laughs> Please feel free to come. <laughs> uh, 
we're going straight to the ranch and then we're up. <laughs> um, but <laughs> uh, meditation is an amazing tool, whether you suffer from anxiety or not, just for introducing a bit of balance into your nervous system and your mind. And it improves your mood. And that's why I love it, because it's, you know, people go to the gym for their physical health. Why not have another mental gym that we use every day for our mental health? It's perfect and it's easy. You're here. Dermot, the person you always laugh with. The person I always laugh with. Um, I have a great friend called Ed. Uh, he's my <laughs> oldest friend. That sounds made up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's sitting beside me now. Can't everybody see him? <laughs> He's a soldier from World War One. He's still covered in bandages. I see him every night. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, we went to play school together in Limerick. Uh, the real Ed. Uh, we grew up in Ballyclock in Limerick and we were in uh, terrible bands in school. We were in a band called Rubber Badger uh, together. Uh, the it. Fuse was another band, The Observers. We just kept thinking <laughs> if we kept changing the band's name, somehow we would get better. Our kind of fast track, our road to success. Because any time you looked at, read about bands that you know, had reached success, they were usually called two or three things before. So we thought <laughs> if we change the name three times in a month, then clearly the next one will make it. Uh, but yeah, he's just one of those guys who, and I think we all have an old friend who every time we meet them, we say to ourselves, you know, we could be driving away and you go, oh, I, we got to meet more often. I yeah. got to see my old friends more often. How do I keep letting life get in the way, you know, of kids or job or got to see my old friends more often. He is another one of those friends that just makes me belly laugh the minute I meet him. And I don't know about you, if, if certainly if you're in the career of entertaining people, it's so nice to just sit back and let someone totally. make you laugh your head off yeah. and not feel this pressure that us entertainers feel to kind of fill the gaps in, in conversations yeah. or, you know, sometimes that can happen. So, um, and it's usually jokes that no one else would get or find funny. Yes. And they're references to things, you know, that you liked wham when you were 10 <laughs> yeah. or like bizarre stuff and we made all these home movies together these awful films which I'm now showing my kids and at the time I thought I was Scorsese <laughs> and now my kids are looking at these things you can google if you google um, Dermot Whelan uh, IRA drugs in Ulster syndrome <laughs> that, <laughs> that is one of the films we made uh, clearly influenced by the news of the day <laughs> We thought, hmm, what's happening with the troubles of the North and drugs? Let's combine the two. Uh, it's a terrible film, but you're welcome to watch it on YouTube. Uh, never made the sequel. Not surprising. Dermot, yeah. uh, a time where you had the last laugh. And generally, my guests will be like, I don't really like to have the last laugh. I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> and I'm like, talking about? I come love on. the last laugh. Yeah, yeah. No one ever says, and you know what? I had the second last laugh. <laughs> I guess I nearly showed them. <laughs> <laughs> um, guess I had the last laugh well um, myself and Dave who I do the radio show with we've been working together for 19 years um, and we know each other intimately and we have played <laughs> pranks on each other for all that time and we you, like anyone who has a best mate you know how hard it is to catch each other out so I got a call from the program The Fear at one time. This is a show on RTE uh, a while back. It was a prank show where 
they wanted to know would I try a trick on Dave and I said look I'll try but you know he's so wise to everything I say so we had to get the like my bosses in the station everybody involved in this thing to to set this up and and the person who worked for the company who was sponsoring our radio show and the idea was that Dave we had to go in for a photo shoot and to make a video for the company and it was McCain's chips <laughs> um so <laughs> The idea was that we would go in and make videos to promote McCain's and get them on side for our radio show. So we went in and the director was there and he's like, okay, great. So uh, Dermot, in this scene, you'll be doing this, Dave, if you could just put this on. And he's like, why am I dressing up? And he's not, oh, just because um, it's in your size and we want Dermot to do, do this the thing. And so anyway, Dave is like the most easygoing guy ever. So he put on this outfit and it was him as a chip. <laughs> as a french fry standing there with his little face hole and he's like why am I the only one wearing a suit and I was like oh, look Jesus, be a team player will you Just... so anyway they put him on on a trampoline and made him jump up and down and he had to say I'm a happy chip <laughs> or, or you know that feeling of trying not to laugh but it's like when you're you know when you used to go to mass and yeah. someone would make a friend to make you laugh catch your eye or something <laughs> and you'd get the shaking shoulders and I had to just I kept having to turn and look away <laughs> and then they were like okay Dave that's great yeah um, here's another costume they put him in a pit- stuffed potato outfit <laughs> again with a little face hole and he's running on a, a treadmill going I'm a healthy potato <laughs> They must have made him do it a hundred times. I'm a healthy <laughs> potato. And I had to squirt ketchup into his face. Uh, but he is like, he, he, you re- realize just how tolerant some people are. If yeah. it was me, the first time the chip suit came out, I'm in my car, I'm driving home. <laughs> Dave is just one of those guys. He's a really nice guy. He's accommodating. And he went through this whole thing. And even as the ketchup was hitting his face, <laughs> he turned to me. And the beautiful moment was caught on, the, on his microphone. And he turned to me, didn't give out to anyone else, just turned to me and said, there will be meetings. <laughs> <laughs> I so love it. that is definitely the time I got <laughs> the last laugh. Amazing. Uh, Dermot, if laughter wasn't the best, do you like the way I keep saying your name? <laughs> Guests have said that to me before. They're like, why do you keep saying my name throughout the podcast? I'm like, it just makes it more formal. Dermot yeah, Plus you can cut massive chunks of it out. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, Dermot Whelan if laughter wasn't the best medicine what would be oh um, well I've kind of touched on it you know not to be go back into serious land again but like my whole point is that it doesn't have to be serious meditation for me is, is a, an unbelievable medicine like it's it improves your mood it lowers your blood pressure it lowers your heart rate it uh, improves your immune system it makes you happier it makes you more content makes you less anxious less fearful like it's all the science is out there you know if there was a pill that could make you experience all the things that meditation can do for you then Pfizer would be all over it like a shot yeah you know but the fact that it's free that it's easy and that you literally can do five or ten minutes a day I think sometimes people are like really mm, that sounds a bit sometimes it's just easier to ask for a prescription or something Mm -hmm. you know so um i would say that's one thing i've learned is that meditation is an exceptional medicine you know but 
one of the things that I'm trying to convey is that it doesn't have to be serious. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about meditation. Like, it's not Instagram. It's not what we see. It's not people who seem to get up and wear white linen uh, (laughs) as clothes for the day, which is not very practical. Have you ever ever worn white linen and eaten a burrito? Like, this this is not going to work out well. Plus, you're freezing. You know, you see these people, pictures, people putting up, you know, just did my morning meditation and they're sitting on a rocky outcrop. You're like, that is the least comfortable place I could imagine to do meditation. You know, meditation is finding a comfy chair, you know, in your house, sitting under a blanket, sitting up in bed, sitting in your car with a seat back if you have a few minutes. Mm. It's that. You don't have to be a guru. You don't have to look like, you know, one of the members of the hothouse flowers. Um... (laughs) It's good my cultural references are like 30 years old. We're all like, what? Yeah. <laughs> don't have to look like the goon show. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you don't have to be a guru. It's not a cult, although I realize, you know, maybe my hard sell is making it sound <laughs> yeah, we're a like, bit like a cult. Sure? Um, but it's just realizing that you can have there are some tools in a toolbox and reach for them the odd time. And you know what? You can have a laugh. It's funny. Mm-hmm. You know, your kids come bursting in on top of you when you do it. <laughs> and you're like, what about? I'm trying to distress. <laughs> you know, I'm meditating because I'm so calm. Can't you tell? <laughs> you know, so, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't stop you. It doesn't make you into this kind of, you know, calm Gandhi-like you know, sandal-wearing Zen monster who just sort of drifts through battlefields going, I don't care about the bullets. We should all just love each other. And, you know, who never gets in an argument at work or at home. Or you, We're all human. Of course that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. The difference is you will probably stay in that state of mind for a little, a little less time. If somebody winds you up, it's not going to take over your whole day. Mm-hmm. If you're upset about something you mightn't get lost in those, those thoughts for so long. It doesn't mm-hmm. make you superhuman. And it's not a fix, an end, you know, fix all thing, but uh, it's certainly a help. And you don't have to look like the hothouse flowers. Hit <laughs> <laughs> new band. <laughs> okay, Dermot, are you ready for your quick fire round? Uh, I am ready, yes, I think. Good. The movie that always makes you laugh. Uh, oh, I watched Monty Python's Holy Grail uh, with my two boys there recently, and that is just so funny. Like, it was definitely one of those films as a kid that I went, oh, you can you can be funny and weird if you want. Like, you yeah. can be as weird as you like. Yeah, yeah. Nothing has to make sense. <laughs> you can have a medieval battle and then a policeman and a, <laughs> and a bus drive into this yeah, shot, yeah, and yeah. it's fine. So I just love that movie, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the actor or actress that always makes you laugh? Um, I think Will Ferrell is just funny, you yeah. know, and I've had the good fortune in my job to meet him a couple of times and interview him. And he's just one of those people who, when he looks at you, you just start laughing. Yeah. And he just has this, he just oozes comedy. Yeah. And he wears woolly jumpers <laughs> and he's, he gives you great hugs. He's just, I think I want to marry Will Ferrell. <laughs> yeah, we're like, yeah. you okay? <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he, I, you know, I, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to do anything and he makes you laugh, you know, yeah. and I, some comedians like that just really have it. Are you a reader? Uh, not really. Okay, we'll skip that question. I was going to say the book that makes you laugh. Mm. That's okay. I enjoy an odd pamphlet. <laughs> if I'm down with the doctors, you know. 
Um, yeah, penguin jokes on the little chocolate bars. They're good. Yeah. The comedian that always makes you laugh. Um, gosh, the comedian who always makes me laugh. Dylan Moran is brilliant. He's one of my heroes. Uh, I think he's the, one of the heroes of a lot of comedians. Just beautifully crafted comedy. Uh, he's so full of angst. And uh, he just manages to paint his life and our lives in just such a weird and wonderful way. Um, yeah, Dylan Moran would be my, my fave. And finally, Dermot, your best or worst joke? Oh, God. This is one of those questions as a comedian people ask you and I never have an answer. <laughs> best or worst joke? They're kind of the same thing, really. Yeah. The bad ones I'm are good. I'm trying to think. Uh, Dave does a thing called uh, Bad Jokes on the Show. Oh no, I'm <laughs> called bad jokes. Yeah. Um bad jokes. I've, I've actually gone blank. Oh god. Jokes. Okay, is there anything you'd like I'm to plug? Pressure. I'm back at school. <laughs> I'm going red. Ah! It's the purple guy. Mm, breathe, breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, use your tools, Dermot. You know what to do. <laughs> Talk to Ed. He's always here beside you. Ed. <laughs> I know you can get me through this. That'll do it. Yeah. That'll do it. Dermot okay. Whelan, thank you so much for sharing the laughs of your life. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you to everybody at Salesforce. <laughs> thank you for listening to The Laughs of Your Life. I hope you enjoyed it. If there's anyone you'd like to hear from, get in touch. Tweet me at Theron Garrahy. Don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, review, and all those other things. This podcast is recorded in collaborative studios. 